Hello and welcome to this new episode of From University to Unicorns, a podcast that investigates how Australia can turn great research into future tech giants. This podcast has been lovingly put together by Natasha Rawlings, Alex Romero and Rom Bourave. It's sponsored by Uniseed, Australia's longest running investment fund that invests in early stage technologies coming out of their research partners. In this podcast, we went out and spoke to researchers, university leaders, business leaders, entrepreneurs, founders and government to find out what is stopping us from getting great research into the world and how we can do it better. Hi everyone, my name is Juan Bouvray and today I'm going to be your host with my friend, startup and investment guru, Natasha Rawlings. We are super excited for this first episode of our new podcast, From University to Unicorns. Today we're going to discuss the fundamentals and find out what research is, why it is important and how well Australia performs. Okay, this is it Natasha. My first question. This idea of a podcast to explore how we can turn great research into future tech giants comes from you. Can you tell us what motivated you? Well, thanks, first of all, for being my co-conspirator on this, along with uh, Alex Romero. But I sat down in January of 2021 with my friend and colleague at UNSW at Knowledge Exchange in the Tech Transfer Office there. Her name is Joy Francisco. And we were talking about doing some articles on you know, what, why is research commercialization so hard? And that turned into a podcast that I'm now doing with different people because Joy's now on maternity leave to really tackle the important question for Australia's future. This might actually even be a pivotal moment in our history to think about, you know, if we got this right, what would it mean for Australians, the Australian economy, and actually making the world a better place? Yes, and what excites me about our future discussions is research in Australia. It has an excellent reputation locally and internationally. I'm very excited to explore whether we are doing enough to get our discoveries and inventions into the world. We have interviewed a broad range of experts and thought leaders in universities, businesses, government, not-for-profit organisations. We all have amazing ideas and thoughts on how we can get our great research into the hands of people who need it. So, Rom... Can we start off with, can you tell me about the Australian research system? How big is it and who is involved exactly? Sure. So Australian's research system is world class. As I said just now, it has an excellent reputation. It produces 2.7% of the world's scientific output. Despite Australia being home to only 0.34% of the world population. How big is it? Well, in Australia, there are about 180,000 people dedicated to doing research or science in Australia, of whom about 80,000 are working from, for universities at the moment across 41 institutions. In fact, universities undertake about one-third of all research and development in Australia. In 2020, Australia invested $36 billion in research and development, with about 50% coming from businesses, and that compares to 74% or 78% in Japan. But universities also contributed one, about a third of our total investment in R&D, including government grants. And the rest came from direct investment from the government or from private non-for-profit organizations. We shouldn't underestimate their contribution. And in fact, non-for-profit organizations invested in 2020 invested $1 billion in R&D. But before we continue, 
Let's just listen to Duncan Iveson, Deputy Vice-Chancellor Research at the University of Sydney, who gave you a great response when you ask him why universities do research. I mean, the first and most obvious answer is because human beings are curious and ask questions about the nature of things. It's where I think we're hardwired to do that as a species. We're hardwired to do that as, a, as humans. But I guess more organizationally, you know, universities are, you know, those organizations, I guess, that are, are focused on asking the big questions and really focused on doing research, not only for the sake of it, but also to, you know, address big, thorny, difficult questions that really aren't asked anywhere else. If you're working in a company, the point of doing research in the context of a company is to advance the interests of the company, to build a better machine, build a better product, develop a better service, whatever. Whereas in a university, we do research because we want to know the answer to things and we have a pretty broad perspective on what's important and what's valuable, but also we want to figure out problems that otherwise might not be tackled. It is also interesting that universities invest primarily in basic research, while businesses invest mostly in applied research and experimental development. So this is a good place to stop because before I got to UniSeed, I didn't really understand there were these different types of research. And you explored all of this in your own podcast, Research for What? So can you answer me and our audience today, what is basic research, applied research and experimental development? And what is the importance of all of this for researchers in the broader community? Right, so the Australian Bureau of Statistics actually defines four types of research. The very most fundamental type is pure basic research. And, and at the other end of the spectrum is experimental development. So the four types are, as I said, pure basic research, then strategic basic research, applied research, and experimental development. The first one pure basic research, is really driven by curiosity. It's our need and our desire to create knowledge, to understand how the world turns and, and why we are who we are, etc. At the other end of the spectrum is experimental development. This is really working, doing research, performing research to improve products, materials, devices, uh, processes that we already have. I would say that all four types of research are extremely important. So how does Australia perform in terms of translation? And can we just talk about what translation is to begin with? Because that's another word that exists in university circles but might not actually be outside of it. So that's interesting. So for me, translation is turning knowledge into products, innovations, services that people can benefit from or can utilise. Or even policy changes. Or even policy yeah. changes. Yeah, that's, that's right, that's right. Mm. And Natasha, another word that is very often used and can mean different things for different people is research impact. So let's just listen to Esther Pranker, the regional connector for the UNE Smart Incubator in Armidale. I really like the way she describes what she calls research valorization or research impact. I'm Esther Pranker. I did a PhD on innovation management and valorization at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam. Valorization is a term, uh, very, to summarize it, it means to get academic knowledge and bring it value. So whether or not it's commercial value or societal value, just to see what you can do with that academic knowledge. Is impact a similar word? I mean, we use that very freely um, here and it means different things to different people, but does it align with that 
with that word. Yes, I absolutely agree. Yeah, it's it's mm. research impact. Right. And I think impact is, yeah, it's, it's very all-encompassing as well because it can be cultural impact. It can be uh, social impact. Sure. So commercial, economic impact. Um, there are yeah. so many different levels of, of impact, but also value. Research impact comes in a number of gradients and it can sometimes be confused with engagement. Mm-hmm. and purely a promotion. If a research student, for example, conducts their research and then publishes it in an article, it's not so much of an engagement. So there is impact because anybody who has access to the journals and reads the, reads the article mm-hmm. you know, gets exposure to the research results, but perhaps doesn't do anything with them. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's more that like uh, awareness. So you create awareness. That's one of the first impact levels. A second impact level is when the same student goes to a trade show and has a, a presentation spot. So there's a little bit more interaction with the audience, the target audience. Mm-hmm. And perhaps after the presentation, there are some questions. You know, there's mm. the, so there's a little bit more interaction with what are the research results and who is mm-hmm. the intended, you know, audience. However, that audience is still very limited. So mm. the next step would be to, you know, the next step would be to enhance that engagement and actually mm-hmm. start a conversation with your uh, impact audience. So mm. the target audience, who are you doing that research for? And then directly target that group those stakeholders Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. start to work together with the research results. So Mm. helping that target audience make sense of the results. Mm. The final level of research impact is when the audience knows where to find the results and actually uses that to change their mindset and to change their activities, Mm. maybe make their activities more efficient or create a new protocol that enhances safety or, you know, so that those are like the three levels Mm. of research impact. And Mm. ultimately you want the top level of research impact. In February, 2022, the Australian government published a great university research commercialization action plan. And it shows that Australian research indeed ranks very highly in basic research. However, it ranks less well, or some people will say, poorly in what we just described as translational research. And the reference there that people often cite is the OECD Science and Technology Indicator. But another way to look at this is the realization or the observation that funding for R&D in the higher education sector has increased four times in the last 20 20 years, from about 3 billion a year to about 12 billion a year in 2020. Along this increase, our outputs have also increased four times. So publications have improved or increased from 23,000 to about 100,000 a year um, in Australia. However, the total number of invention disclosures has not increased in the last 20 years. And we're sitting at around 20 uh, invention disclosures per university, per institution in Australia per year. This compares to 60 in the US and 120 per institution in Israel, for example. It is also often said that the R&D expenditure as a percentage of GDP in Australia is low. In fact, it is below 2%. And it 
is continuing to decrease. So this is way below the OECD average, and it's way, way below the R&D expenditure for champions like Israel and Japan who spend about 4.5% of their GDP in R&D. However, Australia compares quite well to other countries who actually do pretty well in terms of research commercialization. In, in fact, the UK, Germany and Canada all spend about 2% of their GDP into R&D as well. So it really just depends on how you look at this, I think. Is it an opportunity or is it a challenge? Or are we just okay, we're in the middle of the flock, you know, we're, we're doing all right in this. And I think that's the question that we're trying to answer, like, should we be good at this rather than are we good at this? That's right. And the different ways and maybe just spending more money isn't the, the solution. So what sectors is R&D money spent on in Australia? So that's really interesting. I was talking about investment from businesses or universities before. In fact, Australian businesses almost exclusively invest in STEM. In fact, almost exclusively in engineering, IT and computing sciences. However, the higher education sector has a more, much more diversified portfolio, still heavily focused on STEM, but much more di diversified. And can we just talk about what STEM is for those people who don't know? Sure. STEM stands for science, technology, engineering and math. If we look at R&D expenditure in health, which is what I'm more familiar with, our total R&D in Australia is $2.8 billion a year, which comes primarily from universities and is mostly spent on cancer and cardiovascular research. Now, if we compare this to the total expenditure in health, the US invests 50% of all global health expenditure every year. Japan spends about 11% of all health expenditure. Australia is at the very bottom and spends only 1.1% of total health expenditure every year. So again, is that enough? Um, is it not enough? And can, what, what do we actually achieve with this? You know, Rom, I've always thought about health that that is something that this country could be really good at because we've got quite a good functioning health system compared to a lot of places around the world where a very, you know, well-to-do population. You know, we, we have quite a lot of money here and we also have an ageing population. And all of those th three things combined makes, th makes me think that we could hit it out of the park in terms of health innovation. So another question for you, why should we invest in R&D and research commercialisation? So what is it? Who cares? Uh, that's a good question. So for some people, it's just about the money. And in fact, if we looked at the financial, from a financial perspective, the CSIRO working paper named Quantifying Australia's Returns to Innovation finds that every dollar spent in R&D creates on average $3.5 in benefits and an average 10% average annual return. So that's not bad. And it says to me that we need to invest in research and, and development. And as an investor and also a you know old marketer, they're pretty good stats. Like I would have been really happy getting those sorts of returns. They're very good stats and they're very conservative too. Right. Okay. So they're probably much higher than those. And they're very different from um, sector to sector. So in, in Australia, the mine, any, any R&D in mining or IT, computing sciences, for example, have huge yields of return. But it's not just financial. Take Cochlear Australia as a well-known example of successful research commercialization in this country. Cochlear implants and devices were invented by Professor Graham Clark 
at the University of Melbourne in the 1970s. Between 1979 and 1985, Professor Clark and his team received about 4.7 million in grants from the Australian government. Today, Cochlear Australia generates $1 billion in annual revenue, employs more than 4,000 people, and reinvests $185 million per year in R&D. And again, it's not just about money or jobs, but Cochlear also improved the life of 500,000 people who have received an implant globally in the last 40 years. And this could not have happened without excellent research in our universities and commercialization at the other end. And also being patient, because it didn't happen overnight. It took many, many years for them to get to that level of impact. It took 40 years, over 40 years. Mm. So another question, how well do business and universities engage and collaborate? Well, that's a really good question. And in fact, I found a shocking figure, again, from the Australian government's action plan. It says that... Of all innovation-active businesses, only 1.6% of them do collaborate with higher education or government institutions. This is 10 times less than the OECD average. So, of course, we often cite differences between businesses and universities. The differences in priorities, cultural and skill sets, IP and regulation. Universities have their own incentives. But what is it that so few innovation-active businesses collaborate and or engage with universities? Hopefully we'll answer that question wrong. <laughs> now, Natasha, my turn to ask you questions. So you working at, at Uniseed, you're at the v interface with research. You get pitched ideas for commercialization or impact all the time. What makes you tick? How do you see and what type of research do you see has the potential to, to go out to the world? Yeah, well... It's, it's a good one, that one, because mostly when I speak to researchers at universities, what I realise is we're talking completely different languages. And I think probably most investors will have that problem speaking to researchers. I get an hour of research pitched at me that if researchers aren't very careful and mindful, I won't understand anyway. I'm a lay person, but it actually doesn't matter. If I'm like you and, you know, I've specialised in marine biology and I'm over here in chemical engineering talking about my latest invention, you won't understand <laughs> that right. either. That's right. Right. And so what you realise is everyone has to dumb it down for everyone to be able to participate. And so I get to the end of an hour, I've often not been able to get a word in, which is quite a feat because, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a big talker. And I don't understand what the problem is that the research is solving or if there is a problem it's or it's a solution just chasing a problem. And without problems, there's no businesses. And if there's no business, then there's no point in me talking to them because I invest in businesses, not in research. So I think that's really fundamental in this whole exercise that we need to somehow build more of an interface between researchers and the investment community and just the business community in general to figure out how we're going to, you know, get great stuff into the world. But generally, just as an investor, I've it's a really hard place to invest in. And that's why there's not many investors like Uniseed. We've had a few pop up recently. And I think 
the more the merrier, to be honest. But, you know, the, the reason is because when you invest in deep technology, in inverted commas, and I'll talk about what that means in a bit, there's a lot of early business and technical risk. It's just too freaky for most investors to go to. And especially in this country where, you know, and probably and definitely elsewhere where most investors just like B2B software Mm. Mm. (laughs) and they want founders Mm. attached. And most deep technologies don't have founders attached because the founders are scientists who need and probably should stay in their institutions and not try and do something that someone else might be able to do better, which is commercialise it, right? And as an investor in deep tech, I actually find it really hard to get investment alongside me because we just aren't anyone's flavour. But I think that's changing and that's really good. So can we just go back one step? What is deep tech? Okay. So deep tech was actually coined by Cicada Innovations quite some years ago. So that's really cool. Um, Cicada Innovations is is based here in Sydney and it went to the world. And basically what it means is hard tech or frontier tech, or as Rachel Slattery likes to say, it's tech that hurts your head. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. And it often is grown in labs. So, you know, the university piece there is really important. It's usually patent protected. And like most things based on research, it has a real ESG focus and closely aligns to the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. And if you don't know what those are, look them up, print them out and stick them on the wall behind you because they're important to keep in mind. And the the other thing is that it's really tech agnostic. Like when people talk to me about tech quite often in an investment sense, what they're talking about is software. Mm. But in deep tech, it's much, much broader than that. And thank you to Hello Tomorrow organisation for a lot of these facts. But, you know, it's, it's about it could be clean tech, it could be biotech, you know, like drug development, it could be robotics, it could be new materials. And in an IT sense, it means artificial intelligence. And in fact, that's where most of the money has gone to in the deep tech sector. But generally what all of these things have in common is that they solve a large problem. Like I said, they're, they're tackling those UN sustainable development goals and 96% of them use two plus technologies. So it's about how do we tackle this problem and what technologies do we need to bring to bear to make it happen? And 70 odd percent or more have patents attached to them. They're often physical, not digital Mm. innovations. So we're talking about bits rather than bytes. (laughs) That's a really cool way of putting it. You know, 83% have a physical product. And the other thing is they're born out of cross-organisational ecosystems. And I think that's why it's really important in this podcast that we talk to all the different players. You know, it's about startups, it's about universities, it's about investors, it's about accelerators and incubators, it's about large business and government. Like all of these types of organisations are parents to, you know, the deep, deep technology spin-outs and organisations. Before we talked about money and how much money is around in R&D in Australia, how much money is there in investment? In deep tech? Well, I'm sad to say it's not a lot. (laughs) It is growing, but it's not fast enough for the problems that we're facing in the world. Like if you think we've, 
you know, well, are we out of a global pandemic? I don't know. <laughs> Most days now we're getting COVID for a second time. You know, we have a climate crisis and these are the types of technologies that are going to help solve those big human and planet problems. So, you know, we've gone from about 15 billion to 60 billion in 2020, but deep tech is still really considered a niche investment. So of the $1.9 trillion in VC and private equity monies, only 60 billion of that goes to these deep technologies. So, you know, you can see how skewed the mm. market is to, you know, to other types of investments, other than the ones that frankly I care about. And like I was saying, AI and synthetic biology have actually soaked up 75% of, you know, that 60 billion, which was already small in the, in the first place. And 75% of that is, is housed in the US. So clearly the US has decided it's going to get good at this. And there's a couple of ecosystems over there that, you know, we'll talk about later in the, the podcast that really make this work for them. And finally, you know, the road forward for these in investments and these types of companies looks really different. And for me as an investor, it looks really different. When I talk to my counterparts in software, they just have such a different experience. You know, they're, they're drinking from a fire hose most of the time of, you know, all of these opportunities coming at them and they've got to sift through them really quickly and figure out what, you know, what's working. I've got to hunt for deals. I've got to attract other resources and collaborators in. Deals don't find their way to me. I put them together and I do something called venture builds, which is actually sort of a little bit of a dirty word in the investment community because everyone likes founders, right? But these things, as I said, they're not going to come with founders. So, you know, really deep tech investment, it needs a different type of investor lens. And the reports that uh, BCG and Hello Tomorrow over in, in France have, have put together you know, a list of things that really resonated with me when I was feeling all alone at Uniseed. <laughs> and like, why are we Robinson Crusoe? Why aren't there more people doing this? And, and the reason is that, you know, it's a different type of investor who's actively seeking deal flow. Like all those times I came to you at UNSW and we, you know, we had that session, Crazy Might Work yes. you know, in your yeah, faculty. Yeah. You know, it's just trying to get deals out of the ground or, you know, opportunities out of the ground and, and making those opportunities into investments. These, you know, I talked about them being venture builds. You've got to build collaborators and other investors alongside you. I mean, VCs are sort of like the big connectors of our investment ecosystem. I think it's because we feel so bad that we say no to most people and we feel like we've got to do something. But I think seriously, though, we, we're all in it to, you know, grow young businesses, have ideas thrive where, you know, investors, at least in early stage investment, are in it because they... They love the idea of building things, especially business. And you've got to like linking universities, different pools of expertise, large business, government and other investors together. So, you know, the great thing about Uniseed, I think, is that after 22 years of being in the market, we're finally becoming the flavour that everybody wants. <laughs> Hopefully with this first episode, we've set the scene and managed to show you the enormous potential of research and that we can do better at getting the, our research inventions, our fantastic research inventions and discoveries into the world and into the hands of people who really need them. We've got a, maybe a long way to go, but I'm really looking forward to hearing more thoughts, ideas and suggestions on how we can improve. 
Thank you everyone for listening to From University to Unicorns. There are many solutions that we do discuss in this podcast, but there's many that none of us have even thought about. We'd really love to keep this important discussion going by getting your thoughts and comments on our LinkedIn page, From University to Unicorns. Thanks so much.